Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to the Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And we have a special guest today, and Rafi, if you want to introduce him. Yeah, so this is Dr. Ram, a UK podiatrist and a influencer. I've followed you on TikTok and uh, social media platforms. You're known as the Good Foot Doctor. Correct. Correct? And I've, I followed you as well, so I'm a big fan of your videos you put out. Yeah, it's the um, new marketing campaign, right? Uh, it used to be uh, you go out, you go door to door, shake hands, kiss babies, but now marketing is all social media based. So I, I like that uh, you're doing all that. I appreciate it. And it's quite hard work because you've got busy life and your work usually to create content. It, it's another. Oh, it's a full time job, I agree. Become the norm. So you're a podiatrist from the UK. Um, and I know the training there is different. You go from high school straight to podiatry school, right? Correct. Everything is an undergraduate. Medicine, dentistry, nothing's a graduate. Correct. There are a few which used to be like um, the critical audiology. That's also become an undergraduate. But the whole idea is because we have A-levels, but we're in college. So we do chemistry. If you're trying to get into like medicine, obviously you, the requirements are chemistry, biology, perhaps maths or physics. So you're, you're learning all that, and that's quite at a high level. So then to jump into university, you'll be able to do the English system, which has been there since, since the dawn of time. And I know it's different to the U.S. So how long is the training then? Three years for podiatry. No problem. Other careers like medicine, it's five years. I think yeah, dentistry is five years as well. But for podiatry, it's, wow. very, hands, it's very packed. Like, for three years, you're, you're doing quite a lot. So the first two years are, like, your undergrad, and then the last three years are your medicine-based? No, it's all uh, undergrad three years. But the thing is, before I did uh, oh, wow. podiatry, I actually studied biomedical science. I, did, I was doing a degree in that. So I can see the wow. difficulty in, in podiatry because it's, um, 
you, you know, you've got oral exams, there's clinical exams, and it's not a pass or fail. It's like an honest, honest degree. So I think that wow. it's, it's quite demanding in, in that sense. They're quite subjective too, if you ask me. Yeah, I could imagine so. What about training afterwards? Do you residency, internship? We don't because that, that's one of the the kind of like pros with with podiatry that you can go after you pass exams and you register uh, with the the HCPC, which regulates the licensing. Once that's approved, you can start working. But if you want to do further training, you can actually do a it's a master's in podiatric uh, medicine theory in podiatric medicine and that gives you the kind of like passport into becoming a podiatric surgeon having you don't need to do the full masters i think you just need to do one year which is a certificate wow so for those of you who don't know um when we go through school in the u.s you're doing your undergrad for about four years um if you can rush through it two three years hopefully you know those accelerated programs but then you do four years of med school, podiatry school, whatever, uh, dentistry. And then after that, you do your uh, residency, which is a minimum of three years. And then fellowships or whatever other advanced training you want to get going. So I like this idea of not wasting your time in undergrad. Because I truly believe undergrad is a waste <laughs> if you know what you want to do. Four years wasted. While if you go to you know, the UK... And in a lot of other um, countries, I know like a lot of Asian countries, uh, China, India, Pakistan, uh, you're doing right from high school to your medical training. You're going, you know, four, five, six years, and bam, you're set. Correct. I think everywhere around the world is like that. But I like, for me, because I'm, I'm coming from outside into the U.S., I find that quite fascinating to do four years of undergrad. I think it should be three years, though. But then you, you can choose because you're Jeez. quite young. You don't, you're not, you're 16, 17. You know, and you make, you've got to make a decision. You don't know what to get into. You might not be seasoned yet. Because I've had some friends who actually wanted to become doctors, but they didn't get A level, to, they didn't get the grades in the A levels to make it. So what they did was they actually did, because now they introduced fast track medicine, which is four years. For graduates, it's a graduate entry medical program. In the last 10 years, so many of those have been opening up. So if you've got a bioscience undergraduate degree, then you can apply for graduate entry medicine. So that's been also uh, another option. Yeah, I, I like that idea. No time wasted. You know what you want to do. Jump right in head first and get the training you need. You know? But having said that, because I've got nephews who are in school and they're going to and I can see that it's actually better because the, you've got a lot of time, you see. I know you're losing time, but actually, as a child turning into an adult, you've got a time to actually learn. You can choose your major as well. So there's a lot of flexibility, but yeah, it takes a bit of time, that's all. I, I think you're right. I think you're missing the social aspect of undergraduate training and the ability to mature at the same time. So. I certainly don't think I was ready for graduate level medical education until I was 22. So I spent four years figuring it out and and had a really good time <laughs> doing it. So yeah, don't miss the yeah. don't miss the social aspect of it. That's true. Now, what's the scope of practice being a podiatrist in the UK? 
Are you doing surgeries mostly, clinical, uh, wounds, ulcers, amps, uh, big surgeries, I don't know, ankle replacements? I mean, sure. So I'll start on the top. Basically, when you qualify as a podiatrist and then you get licensed, you can do anything apart from uh, podiatric surgeries. You can do non-invasive procedures. So anything which isn't surgically, apart from nail surgery. I mean, yes, that's, that's the only surgery that you can actually do. So coming down on that, the biggest need for podiatrists is uh, diabetic wound care. So that's the biggest thing which keeps the profession alive because anything else, because we, work, we have a government system called the National Health Service, everything works on the criteria of what they need for their hospital or because we have trust, community settings. So everyone creates their own criteria, they've got their own, almost like a company. So it doesn't matter so much about what profession you're from because we have nurses, doctors from different specialities. It's about what the clientele needs, what do they need. So wound care, diabetic wound care is a very extremely high need. So that, I've got to say in the UK, like that's one of the biggest areas of expertise for podiatrists. Where I started debriding wound, diabetic wounds when I was in my last year of university. To a point when I started. Oh yeah, I would agree. Hmm. Even here in the U.S., uh, diabetic foot care, ulcers, wounds, very common. We just uh, started with a wound care clinic of our own just because um, it's become so prevalent in the practice. That, because no one, it hit me, because I was thinking about this podcast, there's no one who's actually doing it. They can, but I've been looking at nurses, they can actually, but few of them can debride. But then again, all of them lack the biomechanical knowledge to offloading. Few, you know, doctors from uh, vascular surgeons, they can, they've got a, a good knowledge, but they don't like touching wounds, you know, they go, I'm not touching that. Dermatologists, yeah. some of them do, but again, they don't. It's not really, no one was doing it, to be honest with you. So it's kind of like a new thing that's come up, and also because there's an increase of people who have diabetes and uh, become high risk. So that's what kind of changed the game of podiatry. So I, I, you asked me before we started about the peripheral nerve work that I do. And a large portion of that is trying to turn around sensory loss in diabetic patients. And we're able to do that to a certain extent when we catch it at the right time by doing neurolysis or decompression procedures on the tarsal tunnel, common fibular nerve, deep fibular, superficial fibular nerves, and allow patients to retain their protective sensation. And that's something that was, you know, heresy 30 years ago. But we have a large multi, uh, multi-center randomized controlled trial being done right here in Dallas at UT Southwestern. And uh, it's an ongoing study uh, that's probably going to produce a dozen papers uh, on the applicability of that surgery and turning around patients who are heading down the wrong path. So, yeah, I think that my practice is, is, is revolves around trying to save that diabetic limb, both from a peripheral nerve standpoint and from an architectural standpoint, and doing Charcot reconstruction, doing the, the deformity correction that's required uh, to try to prevent recidivism. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of that done in, in, in the UK, actually. A lot of the hospitals which had podiatric surgery units did some of that work. And it, again, every, mm-hmm. every place was commissioned differently. 
because some places orthopedic surgeons would also overlap. It all depends mm-hmm. on which place you're working in. I think the orthopedic surgeons, uh, again, they're another group that probably isn't that interested in treating the wounds. And they um, certainly didn't really have the expertise with the peripheral nerve. Yeah, I think that's the whole why podiatry emerged project um, surgery, particularly in the UK, mm-hmm. because orthopedic surgeons, they didn't really have interest in, in, the, in the digits, in the forefoot. Right. They were more interested in the knee, anything about because it was just so complicated. The success rate was very low back in the 1970s and 80s. So progetric surgery actually demonstrated, because I, I'm not sure what, they don't quote me on this, but the first progetric surgery in the UK was done in, 19, in the late 1970s. And I don't know the person's name, but he's one of the first progetric surgeons who actually said, hang on, I'm going to do this surgery. And he found, he got, um, it was a legal loophole where he could actually do it. That was the first surgery that was kind of performed and it was successful. And then the General Medical Council came into play and they it became sort of like a court case where they were saying, hang on, it's illegal what you're doing. And then he actually proved it's not, it's a, what I'm doing is operating, I'm actually doing everything legally. And what's interesting in an article I was reading is they didn't budge because he was like saying that if they actually budged, we could have, it would have been game over, but it didn't. That allowed scope of practice to emerge. And from there, it's just been, I mean, even from the last 10 years um, in the UK, the amount of new surgeons that have come up, I've got, you know, colleagues and friends who have now are podiatric surgeons, you know, they've, they're on that, and they've done great research, they've written great papers. It's really, like, gone to another level. I mean, what about in, in, in the U.S.? When was, like, the first, because I was watching a podcast with, I think, Dr. Harkless, he was one of the first yes. people involved in the Texas classification, in fact. He, he could literally write the history book of podiatric surgery, not only in Texas, but uh, throughout his lifespan. So, yeah, I mean, he's seen it all. And he's helped push that scope of practice in Texas to get to the point where we can practice to the level of our training. And, uh, and he helped start a new podiatric medical school in the uh, South Texas that Javier Lafontaine, one of my colleagues, is now taking over as the dean, and it's ingrained in the University of Texas system. So it's it's very much a big part of the future of, of medical training here in Texas, which is great. And I know that in California, the California Podiatric Medical Schools were working with the state to try to get podiatric surgeons the uh, physician and surgeon certificate which would put them on par with any of the other MDs and DOs uh, with, without a limited license. And uh, part of that process required that they looked at the training in the schools, looked at the training in the residency programs in California, and it was a very favorable review. And I think that's going to keep pushing that forward so that we'll have parity with MDs and DOs when it comes to uh, scope of practice. Yeah, it used to be that um, podiatry schools were standalone entities, but now I want to say all of them have joined a medical school. Uh, so you're sitting in the same class next to MDs and DOs, uh, learning everything the same for the first two, three years, up until you start bridging apart and doing your podiatry specialty uh, problems, you know, pathologies, and 
it makes it simple. So when you're taking your boards, your, your USMLEs, I mean, when we're studying, we're starting off with the USMLE guidelines, watching the same classes, same courses, as if I'm starting for the USMLE step ones and stuff. And they're working on allowing us to take those tests. Yeah. And I think that's where it's headed. But I, I agree with you. I wish the reciprocity across the globe was better. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to have the same scope of practice in Spain or Mexico, France, and be able to provide care, even if as, yeah. as a semi-retired podiatrist, you know. I know. I mean, I did a podcast with a, a spine surgeon based in Miami, and he worked in places like in Italy and mm. Obviously, he was doing training there, but in, in the medical field, you could go anywhere in the world, pretty much. Obviously, you need to get a license, but I think that's one thing that was kind of, um, I won't say disadvantage, but the thing that kind of closed off, because in the Commonwealth um, countries, because in the UK, we can go to Australia, Australian podiatrists, after working with Australian podiatrists, come to the UK. Mm-hmm. I've only known of one British podiatrist who went to Canada work and I think he had to do some exam but I think it's easy within Australia, the UK, New Zealand they're kind of like on a similar sort of like system but even mm-hmm. Australia they've actually they started a DPM program which kind of follows the kind of US system so four years DPM yeah and I, I think that uh, has created some issues with yeah where do they fit into their system yeah I, I, I I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but we yeah. really need a, a more global standard. Yeah, Mind you, there are actually two colleges in Scotland, but their Scotland system is it's weird because it's the United Kingdom. You obviously got England, mm-hmm. Wales, and Scotland. Their university is four years. So then the podiatry program is four years as well. So you get actually more time. I was about to study one of the universities, but it was... I stayed in London where I studied because I wanted to commute from home where I lived. That's the only reason I studied over there. But it's interesting mm-hmm. because it's four years. They've got a better system where you just, you do all your studies. Because we have, I think you call them thesis. Um, we call them dissertations in the UK where mm-hmm. you do your paper. So you come back and you fought the end. All you're doing is that thesis. And you get a lot of time to work on that. So it's, that was quite interesting as well. I, I like the fact that in Europe, research is a big part of your training because it's not so much a, a part of ours. I think there are programs where it's probably more emphasized, but it's not required. I didn't yeah, have I to do a thesis to graduate. But I think that's why you can get MD, PhD programs where they, they actually get a chance to do that research, which I think is fantastic. Most of the surgeons that I worked with in Russia you know, were MD-PhDs and had tremendous research backgrounds and continued that in private practice. The thing is, in the UK, everything is heavily on evidence-based practice practice and clinical-based practice. We have um, the NICE, it's called the... It's a guidelines, basically. It's a clinical sort of, like, base that we use. There's a website, there's a lot of documents there. And it allows us to use it as a sort of like we can quote it. You know, there's a lot of things with diabetic care. It changes all the time. So keeping up to that, up with that actually helps clinicians. And uh, 
you guys have a tremendous uh, use of uh, information technology as well. And, and you're able to cull that data, I think, sometimes better than we can, especially those of us who aren't part of the Veterans Administration. So the VA, all the military hospitals have the same uh, database system. Oh, yeah, I but, can attest to that. Yeah. I did uh, a little time at the VA up in Long Island. So we have full access to up-to-date PubMed, Cochrane Libraries, uh, Elsevier. I mean, all that stuff is at your fingertips, literally through the um, medical dictation uh, portal. So I'm doing the patient's notes, and I'm like, oh, let's type in, you know, Pseudomonas originosa. Let's see what the gold standard treatment for that is, right? Boom, oh, click I mean. it, and it gives you everything. It was like... Uh, knowledge at your fingertips it was beautiful well they've also been using an electronic medical record forever yeah and and we still have folks here in denton who are still using paper <laughs> so yeah uh, that's one of the issues we have i remember when i was actually when i just graduated uh after 2014 then i was working uh, as a locum and i was in a place where they were actually transferring from notes paper-based notes to computer so we had to write paper-based notes the whole filing system and also do computer based on it. and Ooh. that was too much because in the morning I had to go and get the files out basically because they were in the same room then write everything down do the computer base go back refile everything back it's like I, after a month I kind of got used to it but it's just <laughs> anything's possible That's I mean no matter how difficult it goes, the more you do it the, the easier it becomes you just kind of get used to it yeah there was a transition a couple of years back where the uh the U.S. pretty much forced us to go to electronic medical records. For all those people that were using paper notes still, you actually had a penalty uh, for still doing paper notes. I mean, I've been on electronic oh, yeah. medical records since 2003. Yeah, you were uh, the original hipster on that. I do know some people that were using paper notes back when I was in training. I believe this is an American um, software called Cerner. I don't know if, you use, if you've heard of that name before. I saw it. Yeah, with the C. C E R N E R. Yeah, we use actually. That's one of the softwares I would use. And it was an American system because when I was learning it, it was based in the in the U.S. So I thought it would be quite popular over here among physicians as well. Uh, we're we're on Athena for the office, but the oh, problem is right now we're on staff at four different hospitals, and every one of them has a different system. So we literally have to know four or five different electronic medical record systems. That's the same uh, when my when last job, like, I feel you on that. There were like three systems. <laughs> so it was just... You. So what's the lifestyle of a UK podiatrist like? Is it private practice, hospital-based, mixed? Mostly hospital-based because a lot of people come in mm. looking for a stable career. And what's interesting is like a lot of nurses have actually have gone to study podiatry because they it's easier for them they want a nine-to-five kind of like career and podiatry kind of ticks that box because nursing is quite demanding sometimes they're doing night shifts and um, mm -hmm. they can't do it anymore so I, that was quite because when I was studying with a lot of nurses in my god and it was a course full of more mature students so that was one of the main things stability and then there are other people who actually want to go into private practice I had a colleague who I graduated with and she was um, married to so her husband actually bought a practice which already had everything in there so they had some other I think a, a, a 
physical therapist already. So she just came after graduating, started, she took over that. And it was just easy to do because I already had the list of patients. And some of these private yeah, practices earn a lot of money, actually. You know, I worked yeah. in one, another story for another day, but it was just covering for a short period of time. So I could see how much he was making. Obviously, I, I, he wasn't paying me that much, but in a day, you could <laughs> rake in probably about $1,000 at times, just standard. Excitement. I think private practice in the United States is, is still probably more financially beneficial than uh, being employed by a hospital system. But it's becoming more rare because places like California, Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, most all on the East Coast, yeah. you know, very, you're seeing fewer and fewer private practice physicians because it's really out. hard to keep up with the overhead. Yeah. But in Texas, we, we like to still be on our own. As much as we can. Uh, I, you know, I've had 23 years of not having a boss, and I kind of like it that way. So I'm trying to stick with this for as long as I possibly can. No, I feel that. And I also thought about that, too, because I was thinking, okay, you don't have a boss, but then you've got to come in in the days that your patients are available. And most of the times, a lot of patients, clientele, would like to come on the weekend. And I was thinking, you know, weekends I'd like yeah. to be off. So that's like, that was one of the main issues. Well, Not issues, but... I, I, we're off on weekends for the most part. And patients find a way to get in to see us from 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday. So, But then if I, you're in an area which doesn't have many podiatrists, so they've got no choice mm -hmm. but to come on week, weekdays. I suppose if you're in somewhere like California, people want to be seen in the evenings, after work, perhaps a weekend. So you've got to kind of adjust for that. Yeah. I think living in California is a lifestyle choice. It's going to be a little tougher, for sure. And there are a lot of podiatrists around, so... Yeah, because you got two, you got the schools there. Two schools there, and a lot of people yeah. have already established practices there or mm -hmm. have the reputation established already, so it's more difficult. I've seen that pattern where people who graduate, even in dental school, where they'll go off to another state, which... It's completely different from the state they originally studied from. Obviously, if they were, if they were New York, California, they go off to an, an, an opportunity would emerge where they could start a private practice or become an associate. Mm -hmm. Obviously, living costs are much lower, so obviously you, the profit margins are opportunity are much higher because you're living on, on a small amount. Yeah, that's pretty much the story right there. <laughs> I'm from New York. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to practice here. I'm coming to Texas where... Um, everyone's kind of spread out, so competition is um, much lower. Plus, no snow. How are you finding it? The, <laughs> the move from New York to Texas, obviously being there for a couple of years now. So, I'm from upstate New York, um, so about an hour north of the city. Um, very similar lifestyle uh, as it is here. If I was in the city, it's a big difference. I lived there for about four years. I'd say... If you have a family and you're trying to establish yourself, you got to be in the suburbs. It's hard to be in the city. There's so much competition there already. And I'm sure it's the same thing if you're in like downtown London versus the suburbs. Uh, lifestyle, you know, I have kids, I got a wife. It's much more comfortable to be out here in the suburbs. Yeah, and that's one thing too. I mean, if you, I see a lot of other physicians working so many long hours, 
And the main thing is like, because I used to work in the diabetic foot um, clinic, we're community-based, so we're there nine to sort of like five. They would come in and sometimes we'd get referred for a patient. Can we leave this patient um, with you now? I'm like, no, we're going to finish up now. We're not, they, it's, sometimes if you explain to them, we're not hospital-based. We're community-based, so our commission is with the community, and that's a, a sort of ours. But if you were in a, a physician specialist, you'd, you'd have to be there until the patient, you actually diagnosed the patient, did your treatments, etc. So I've got some colleagues who are physicians, and and they work like long hours. You know, I had just last year, I, there was one vascular surgeon I was working with. He just literally came on a shift from another hospital, you know, it was like 20, 24 hours, like working 48 hours almost. Yeah, we we have some of those issues here as well. I, one of our vascular colleagues, I, I, I like to joke that he haunts the hospital. <laughs> He's there so often. Um, but, you know, you can limit those things by developing groups and sharing call. And, uh, you know, certainly we've been able to avoid some of those issues where we're being asked to be, uh, you know, available 24-7, 365. Uh, although we do take call, the, the vast majority of the things that we do in the lower extremity don't have to be done right now. Non-emergent, mostly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. unless it's a raging infection, you know, we can deal with it tomorrow. And so the ER will stabilize, get them admitted, and I can go see them the next day. That's, the, that's the one of the advantages of our, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it it extends the length of your career because you're not a stress case for, for twenty years. Yeah, you I can did, get burnt out easy. I did all I the call. The I did all the crazy AI. call for the first eight years, and then I was like, nope, I'm not doing that anymore. But mind you, though, it's not the the amount of hours you do; it's the work you do. I mean, I've known, I've got, I've been burnt out just doing nine to five because you're trying mm-hmm. to see a lot in a short space of time. Like, you know, sometimes you want to spend more time with a patient. If it's a, sometimes a diabetic ulcer, severely infected, you know, you need to get antibiotics. So usually it's half an hour slots we get. Um, pandemic, right. we actually, they allowed more time per patient. But sometimes you can go over that time and then you're, you're running late in your clinic. So it can be quite tiring. I mean, one of my other colleagues, who was basically almost like my mentor. I was working under him. He was working with scope practice as a physician himself. He, he was a podiatrist. But other departments, other doctors would come in and be like, wow, they go, you're doing so much over here. They go, you're pretty much a, a full MD physician because you're, you're giving antibiotics, you're doing other things, you're taking blood, you know, you're testing for blood glucose, you know, you're using all these other machines. And that... He was always like, kind of like, and then going home, he would have to prepare the case studies for for the next day because in the morning we'd have like a a multidisciplinary team meeting where everyone would come in, like from all departments who were involved wow. with some of the patients. So I was with him all the time, and I'm like, this is quite hands on. Where was this? This was in West Middlesex Hospital. Um, okay, and. He, he actually did the theory of podiatric medicine, and he was also a trainee podiatric uh, surgeon, although he didn't continue his uh, training for that. So he was like one of the best practices I've ever known in my life because 
his depth of knowledge was even higher than many podiatrists because he actually did some other courses and he worked with nurses and other paramedics and he kind of was like, wow, the amount of knowledge in podiatry, like, because you, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. Mm. A lot of podiatrists don't really, even if you've learned it, you're going to actually lose it to know general medicine, you know, from the heart to the kind of like arteries in, in your in your neck and, you know, the whole system. So he, he would shock everyone because he knew his stuff inside out to a point where they were like, whatever you need, I'll, I'll, we'll just sign it. Whatever meds, you, because obviously podiatry, you're limited in terms of medication that you could prescribe. I, don't, I think our scope of practice here in Texas is we treat the foot by any means necessary. And, yeah. and that gives us some latitude. Um, and I think it forces you to make sure that you're spending your entire career learning. And if you aren't, I agree with you. You're stagnating. You're going to forget this stuff. You know, Dr. Hussein and I work up our own patients for surgery. You know, we, we do uh, complete HMPs. We're we're able to fully uh, prepare a patient for a surgical procedure. Now, we're not managing their medical problems. That's what their primary care doctor is for. Yeah. But we're making sure that what I'm doing is not going to adversely affect what what their chronic med- chronic medical conditions are are requiring. And vice versa, and so it's a really it's a team approach. I I I think the team approach is so vital with what we do for a living, for sure. Here we have what's called continuing medical education courses and classes. We have to get a certain number of credit hours per year, or I think it's actually technically every two years. Yeah, we've got the same um, as well. You've mm-hmm. got to keep up to date because once they can audit you, the the licensing yeah. body. Every year, they mm-hmm. randomly audit some people, and if you're not up to date, then you can get in trouble. So you need to keep that in your folder. It could be even having this could be CBT, basically continuous. If you documented one hour, if you mm-hmm. sign like a paper, like there's been situations like that where people have you know had meetings just casually, and they've just they've actually kind of just written what they learned that day and then put it into the folder. So that could also count. You could do courses. Yeah, thankfully we've got lots of opportunities online to kind of augment some of that. I just watched one yesterday on lymphedema. Did you do any lymphedema lymphedema sort of procedures or any treatments or management into that or is that Thankfully, we've established a relationship with a lymphedema therapist in, through our wound center. And, you know, that's been a constant problem. I think the availability of those folks with expertise in that is limited. And the it can be a huge part of why your wound is not... I, you know, what? It, it, it's tough. It really is tough. It's but a I lifelong think, problem. And it's, yeah, it's not going to go away. We ended up, I think, kind of falling uh, backwards into this relationship with this lymphedema therapist. But she she's willing to come to the center, meet with patients, establish a plan... Because until you get rid of the edema, or at least to get it under control, I, I, I've got no chance in healing some of these wounds. So uh, I, th- we're going to foster that relationship for sure. I keep thinking uh, about I just patient. referred two more patients this week. What's As that? you're saying, I keep picturing this patient unfortunately passed away last year, and he had severe lymphedema, mm. but the legs were just massive. I mean, if I had pictures, you, you, you can imagine it's, like it's how. Such, it's such a difficult condition to treat. 
and manage uh, it requires a tremendous amount of work from the patient um, and and it and the pneumatic pump systems aren't as easily available as they should be we have to jump through unbelievable hoops to get these in the hands of patients who really need them yeah and it's clearly more expensive to treat the chronic wound problems than it is uh, to, to put one of these pneumatic pump systems in the hands of some of these folks. And that's but, what it comes yeah, down we're to. We're trying sometimes. to learn the system. It's the cost aspect, <coughs> you know, like yeah. sometimes it's actually cheaper to to do a procedure which the perhaps insurance company is not going to, they're not happy with because the alternative, if it gets worse, it's going to be more expensive, I think. The same thing happens within the NHS because although we don't work on a profit-based system, it's actually outcome-based and you've got to do a certain mm-hmm. amount in, in a year, procedures, etc., to to kind of meet that budget. I think I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, the way our fee uh, payment system here in the U.S. is still based on churning them out, and until we truly get to a place where you're reimbursing people for quality care and making that worth for a while you're still going to have uh, issues where the, whatever might be the best thing for the patient is still being denied by the third-party payer. And the complications from treating wounds poorly are so unbelievably more expensive than treating them well. And, and the data is there, but this is not the way the system was built. The system's not built for preventative care. It's not built for preventing recidivism. It's built for doing procedures, and we've we've got to fix that. Uh, but it, we still have to make it worthwhile for smart people to want to do this for a living, because we're already behind the eight ball. We don't have enough people who are interested in diabetic foot or medicine in general anymore. But but particularly diabetic foot, I mean, we get, we're already so far behind the tidal wave of people that are developing type two diabetes and will be at risk for limb loss in the next 15 to 20 years. If we're not churning out people who are interested in treating those folks from all specialties, but primarily the, those folks who deal with lower extremity wounds, the amputation rates are going to explode. I mean, they already are. I'm looking yeah. at some data from the last 10 years, and I can see the man of, especially in my hospital where I used to work. I mean, that was just devastating to see Someone come in, we're trying to debride the wound, obviously offload it. We've been trying everything, you know, working with nurses also coming in. And then after four or five months, you know, just cutting down bone infection or stimulators. Seeing the pictures as well, like to a point where the fourth is pretty much gone. And it's just It's a domino effect. Yeah. And I... I I'm really proud of what we've been able to do here in the Metroplex. There, we have a number of really good wound centers, all different hospital systems. But I, you know, I think we're doing some really good wound care in the Metroplex. But you know, this wound center that we've started at uh, Wise Argyle uh, is three weeks old, so it's in its infancy. But I think it's going to be a big part of the medical community here, and I think it's going to save limbs and save lives every day. Oh. Uh, and actually, that's where I'm headed as soon as we get done because I've got four patients to see there this afternoon. Wow, this has been great. We really appreciate having you on the show, and we need to we need to touch base with you again. 
absolutely. And, uh, and talk about some more specifics of how things are going out there in California. Yeah, no, it's been fun doing this. And, and I'm sure I'd love to come on some of the other podcasts for other case studies that you demonstrate normally and you talk about oh, absolutely. different yeah, aspects of, of your podiatry practice. Yeah, we're, we're constantly videotaping our cases, and we would love to have you on and, and go through, you know, one, one of these surgeries and just go, go through it from A to B um, and, and talk about what our approach is, why we decided to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Let's do that. Oh, well, Let's I love that. that. Thank you for that. Well, Ram, thanks again. And Dr. Hussain, thank you. We'll see you guys next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.